Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. True story. I was walking in East Harlem after teaching a journalism class in a middle school. A man brushed up against me and dropped a plastic bag holding a bottle. I uttered, oh, did that break? He said, I don't think so. Thinking nothing of it, I continued walking down the street. The next thing I know, the man who dropped the bottle was running after me. He stopped me and said the bottle was broken and the contents spilled all over the sidewalk. He then accused me of bumping into him, causing him to drop the bottle, and said he didn't have the money to replace it. He was pretty defiant. Not wanting to cause a scene and quite frankly feeling guilty that perhaps I did accidentally bump into him, I forked over 20 bucks. But as I walked back to my car, I kept thinking how strange this whole scenario played out. So when I got back to the office, I decided to Google the term Bottle Scam NYC. It returned nearly 2 million results. Turns out this is a pretty common scam in New York City. Unfortunately for me, I learned about it the hard way. But here's the silver lining. That incident provided inspiration for this morning's edition of Cityscape. You guessed it, we're focusing our attention on scams. The classified ad website, Craigslist, can be a great resource to find just about anything, from concert tickets to a plumber to a new place to live. The site is loaded with listings for apartments for sale and rent. But unfortunately, not everyone with a posting on the site is on the up. Just ask Sarah Gates. The Trends editor for the Huffington Post fell victim to a Craigslist rental scam. When something is too good to be true, it probably is. I know you've probably heard that before, but no words could be truer, especially when it comes to renting in New York. It's difficult for me to write this, because in doing so I'm admitting that I was the victim of an elaborate con. You should have known better. Why didn't you question that? How could you have fallen for it? I've already heard it all, so don't even bother. I beat myself up every day over how I ignored the warning signs didn't trust my instincts, and chose instead to put my faith in someone I met through Craigslist. Let me be clear. Craigslist is not to blame. I've heard several fairy tale stories about how renters have found amazing roommates or lucky breaks on the site. I'm not saying it's bad as a whole. There are just a lot of people peddling steaming piles of garbage. Now, from the beginning, I needed to vacate my apartment by January 31st, and my housing situation fell through at the last minute. I had enough funds in my savings to front the massive initial deposit, but I was hesitant to lock myself into a year-long lease, especially since the situation with my preferred roommates had fallen through. So I instead opted for a short sublet and began scouring Craigslist and other sites for something that would work in a pinch. That's when I met Kim. We arranged a meeting to see her apartment on East 9th Street. I liked the space. She was friendly, personable, and great at small talk. She provided just enough details about her life to draw me in, without saying too much to make me question the specifics. We hit it off right away, and I thought I had lucked into a great situation at the precise time I desperately needed one. I was wrong. It wasn't long after I had met with Kim's landlord, Michael Bryant, signed the sublease, and paid first and last month's rent that I began to question the decision I had just made. Sure, there were some potential red flags along the way, but that could just be me overanalyzing the situation, right? I wanted so badly to trust humanity, to believe that this was just kismet and could only happen in New York. But, just to be sure, I checked the keys to make sure they worked shortly after I assigned the sublease. They worked. My concerns were allayed. That feeling in the pit of my stomach must have just been a fluke. I laughed off my friend's comments that I was paranoid and crazy. This was my new apartment, and it all worked out. Until I realized the truth. 
When I tried following up with Kim and the landlord to discuss the apartment, I realized both of their phones were turned off. They were unreachable. So I started doing some research, something I should have done from the beginning. I learned there was no Michael Bryant, and Kim was not renting the apartment. The actual landlord did not grant anyone permission to put an ad on Craigslist and was not renting any of the apartments. In fact, she had changed the keys because someone had complained that they had been subjected to a sublease scam in the building. My worst fears were confirmed. Kim and Michael were in the wind, and I was left holding keys to an apartment I had no claim to. I had been swindled, and there was nothing I could do. Well, not exactly. I could report the cons to the local NYPD precinct and file a flurry of complaints with federal, state, and city authorities. As it turns out, Kim and Michael, or Emma and David, had pulled this con before. They'd already duped several young 20-something women out of more than $20,000 around the East Village. I was their ninth victim to cut forward. My stomach dropped. Now there was nothing I could do. I had handed over all my information to the police, and the case was in their hands. There could be legal claims to come, but first they needed to track down the two cons. It's been several months now, and this chain of events still keeps me up at night. I question how I could have been so dumb to trust a total stranger. I should have stopped and done what I'm trained to do as a journalist, my research, but I didn't. I was caught up in the con, and the fantasy that I could find an awesome, affordable apartment the day after I had lost one. To say I've learned my lesson would be an understatement. I've learned more than I ever wanted to know about internet crime, consumer fraud, grand larceny, and how to run a sublet scam. But, most importantly, I've learned what it feels like to be on the wrong side of a con. So I write this now to warn others, whether they be naive newbies or overly trusting longtime residents, to listen to your gut. If a rental situation seems the slightest bit shady, question everything. Don't let anything or anyone pressure you whether it's an impending move date or the fear that you won't get that apartment. There is always another apartment. There is always another solution. Just don't overlook the warning signs and ignore your gut because you're caught up in the moment. In the end, you always lose. Sarah Gates is trends editor for the Huffington Post. Scammers come at us from all angles and often target people they believe might be more susceptible to fall for their gimmicks, like senior citizens. Chris Widello is associate state director for AARP here in New York City. He joins me now on the phone to talk about scams directed at older New Yorkers. Chris, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, George. So how rife is New York City with scams against seniors? Yeah, it's uh, you know it's interesting. It's a it's a very um, we have done some extensive research uh, on this issue just to see uh, you know what the attitudes were of people here in New York City. We did some looked borough by borough, and what we found here was in 33% of people in Queens, uh, these are residents that are 50 and older, say they or someone they know has been targeted by a credit card scam, uh, which is the highest uh, number out of all five boroughs. Um, you know, interestingly enough, across the boroughs, you know, credit card theft or, or some type of scam related to a credit card ranks very high is the most common type of scam that they are faced with. Yet when you say, what do you fear the most? People are fearing identity theft. They, they really have a, a huge fear of identity theft simply because it's a, it's a, a process, a long process to try to correct any um, anything that happens with your identity. It's, it's not an easy process at all. Any particular reason why credit card scams might be more prevalent in Queens? You know, it, it could be, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there is a you know any rhyme or reason to it other than you know it's probably a very easy scam to carry out. Um, you know I, I can think of at least two instances in the last five years where I've had to be issued new credit cards because somehow 
my information was uh, used um, in a fraudulent manner. And I think it's, it's easy. Uh, I think people, you know, most people carry around a credit card or two. You know, it's easy to misplace. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of technology out there to get those, you know, those valuable numbers off your credit card, whether it's, you know, using a, um, some type of interface, uh, you know, in a, in, that they attach to a legitimate uh, credit card machine or, um, you know, somebody taking the number that, you know, and using it fraudulently. So I think it's just because it's so easy to use um, and uh, it just makes it uh, – a big target, but I don't know that there's a specific reason that in Queens it's it's that much higher. Now, Staten Island was highest for internet online scams, right? At twenty four percent. Yeah, twenty four percent. That was the highest of the five boroughs on on internet scams, and it's, um, you know, it's. I think in different areas, uh, certain scams or fraudulent activities work better than others, and it just could be that more people on Staten Island are utilizing the internet, and uh, you know, there are just so many ways that. Uh, people can be taken advantage of. I just received an email recently from a friend who I thought, you know, I thought it was one of my friends, you know, asking for some financial help. And it was a compelling story. And I did a little homework and followed up and said, you know, is everything okay? And uh, he said, oh, you know, somebody hacked into my email and somehow, you know, was putting out this message and asking for you know, to send money. So, you know, um, I think where there's a will, there's a way. And, I, you know, certain scams might work better in different areas depending on, you know, what people are doing. I think, uh, you know, I know also on Staten Island, I talked to a local police officer that said there's a, a door-to-door scam that's uh, becoming more prevalent. And so, you know, that precinct is watching that type of activity while a couple precincts over, they're looking at a different, a t- entirely different type of scam that's mm-hmm. going on. Your survey shows that Manhattan's 50 and over crowd saw higher numbers for investment security-related scams and check cashing or payday loan frauds. Yes, uh, that that was actually very startling. Um, we do know that for some folks, uh, you know, payday loan, um, those types of opportunities are increasingly um, becoming a, a risky business that, you know, some people do not have access to credit or do not have the ability to, you know, take out a loan at a bank like many of us can. And so they are relying on um, things like payday loan or check cashing places that, uh, you know, are using really fraudulent tactics, uh, you know, where the interest rates are so high that you almost can never pay them back or the percentage, uh, you know, that you have to pay to get your check cash is so high that, you know, but it's, it's, it's a desperate situation for many folks. And, um, you know, if you're not doing your homework and making sure you're going to a reputable place, uh, you can certainly be taken advantage of. So, you know, we are always educating people to make sure that they, you know, try to use, you know, a bank or establish credit so they can take out proper loans or and they don't have to resort to these high-risk types of scams. Now, your poll surveyed your membership, AARP members, but are older people any more vulnerable to scams than younger generations? Sometimes. And I, and I do want to just clarify that actually this, uh, our survey uh, uh, surveyed voters 50 plus. It was not just AARP members. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a really nice cross section. And, you know, some are in fact members, but many are not. Um, I think sometimes, you know, uh, especially with certain types of scams, I think the older crowd might be a little bit more vulnerable. I think, for instance, online, if if being online is something new and a skill that they're learning, um, they may be not as familiar with a lot of deceptions where, you know, you see an email asking for, you know, send me $5,000 and I'll gladly, you know, send you $100,000 once I receive it. You know, for many of us, we say, you know, that's ridiculous. Why would I ever, uh, why would I ever do that? Um, but for others who don't have, um, you know, that experience or maybe just aren't, uh, you know, in tune with these scams, they might be more susceptible. Um, you know, often someone's uh, mental state or their uh, emotional state can be a factor uh, if they've recently 
had a traumatic event, passing of a loved one, um, you know, depression, uh, they are more likely to be uh, taken advantage of by fraudulent activity or scam. What do you know about the reporting of scams? Is there a lot of reluctance out there? There is. Um, many people are just embarrassed, and you know they can't believe that they fell victim. That you know they think of themselves as savvy or would recognize a fraudulent activity or a scam when it's happening, and when they're fooled, um, you know they're embarrassed and might not want to report it for worry, you know, for fear that uh, you know somebody is looking at them and saying, you know, how did you fall for this, right? But we know that that is an important piece of it. That reporting it is one of the ways that you can make sure that you know, somebody else isn't taken advantage of. And also, you know, we always encourage folks to share their story uh, because sometimes, you know, hearing what somebody else went through might trigger them to be more careful or to report a scam or fraudulent activity themselves. But yeah, I think embarrassment and the fear of being had is a, a very uh, powerful thing that prevents people from reporting these these things. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, George. Take care. Chris Widello is Associate State Director for AARP here in New York City. For tips on how to avoid falling victim to a scam, visit aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. <laughs> You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. There are hundreds of psychics and fortune tellers throughout New York. Visiting one of those $5 palm reading booths on the sidewalk can be a fun little adventure, but not all so-called psychics have the best intentions. Cityscape producer Veronica Volk explored the more sinister side of psychic readings. Sometimes it's easier to believe in a curse than admit responsibility when things aren't going your way. At least that's what Maya Battle tells me. I don't know, it just kind of felt like things kept happening to me and I like wasn't really being proactive about changing it. Maya is 29 and lives in New York City. She says she'd been going through a hard time, full of the kind of bad luck and misfortune some psychics claim they can cure. When a woman beckoned her from the street to come in for a reading, Maya says she wasn't exactly closed off to the idea. You know, I do, to a certain extent, believe in spirituality and things like that. And I've been told by at least two of her fortune tellers or psychics, whatever you want to call them, that I had a curse on me. After hearing for the third time that she was cursed, Maya started to think maybe it wasn't such a crazy idea after all. And so she went back to see the most recent psychic on the Lower East Side. During a second reading, the psychic upped the ante and told Maya she needed to perform an elaborate and costly ritual to get rid of the curse. Maya agreed. When you're sitting with one person who's talking to you about like, like kind of like really personal stuff in like a really close space under extremely weird circumstances, you just don't really think about things in the way you would if you were just like walking on the street or like talking to a friend and like that's the one thing I'll give her like she <laughs> could fully convince me that if I went down to an ATM she would be able to fix my life basically. 
In fortune telling strictly for entertainment, the psychic takes your $5, gives you a palm reading, and sends you on your way. But in a psychic scam, a con artist convinces you to come back multiple times, each time promising to rid you of a curse and requiring more and more money to do so. These con artists prey on those who are already a little down and out, or so says this guy, Bob Nygaard. When someone's grieving the loss of a loved one, when someone's child has autism, when someone has cancer, when someone lost a job, you know, people are in a vulnerable state, and, and anybody can fall victim. Bob Nygaard is an ex-cop turned private eye that investigates psychic scams in New York and Florida. He says the biggest obstacle to his investigations is getting people to out themselves as victims. It's a cycle, he says. The less people come forward, the more people feel shame for having bought into the con. They think that they're alone, that, th that this just happened to them. But there's so many people out there that are in the same position that have been scammed just like they have. And it really is a shame to suffer in silence and not tell anybody and not come forward. Uh, one of the problems is if they do come forward, they get laughed at by police or prosecutors. Some people are highly skeptical of fortune-telling and curses. They think the term psychic scam to be a little redundant. This can contribute to the cultural stigma Nygaard is talking about that affects the attitudes of law enforcement and the media in addressing these crimes. But Maya's story at least has a happy ending. She went back and confronted the fortune teller and got more than just her money back. She got the motivation to turn her life around. I feel like I'm a totally different person. And not just because of that experience, but just how that experience kind of set off me like standing up for myself and me, you know, not just accepting things that I don't like. And I feel like I fought that and like came out on the other side like a better person. For Cityscape, I'm Veronica Volk. That was Cityscape producer Veronica Volk with Bob Nygaard and Maya Battle. Our exploration of scams in New York City led us to a popular new book called NYC Basic Tips and Etiquette. With us now on the phone is the brainchild of that book, television producer and illustrator Nathan Pyle. Nathan, thanks for connecting with us. Yes, sir. I'm excited to be here. So, Nathan, are you native to New York City? I am not. I'm a native to Ohio, and I moved to New York in 2008. What would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned during your time in New York City? Uh, the biggest lesson is uh, probably page number 30 of the book. Uh, it says, uh, beware the empty train car. It's empty for a reason. And um, I'd say that kind of it transcends just your experience with train cars. The idea with New York is you can you can trust the crowd. You know, if the crowd is, uh, is a, a avoiding one train car, then there's a reason that they're avoiding it. And that's kind of, it kind of goes for just about everything you experience here in the city. Your book warns people about the broken glasses scam. That's something to look out for, isn't it? It sure is. No, and I, it, it happened to me. I was walking in the West Village, and someone I clearly swerved to bump into me. And uh, and when I when I looked down, he had dropped his glasses, and his glasses were broken. And he looked up at me and said, you know, you broke my glasses. You need to pay me $50 to repair them. I said, you know, you need to watch where you're going, sir. Uh, and then I walked away. Uh, when I got home, I, I Googled it. I didn't have a smartphone at that time. I Googled it, and it turned out that was a common scam. Sometimes they use glasses. Sometimes they use bottles. Uh, but, you know, the, the number of scammers is small relative to the population here, but they are out there. Now, what inspired you not to give this individual money? Everything about it seemed fishy. The way he, he swerved to bump into me, he seemed just a bit nervous. It did seem like something that uh, was a bit too prepared. He, he, it wasn't like he was surprised that his, that his glasses had broken. He, he, he went straight from dropping his glasses to pointing at me 
and uh, and asking for money. So it all it all seemed like something that uh, it just seemed out of the ordinary. But I mentioned that I mentioned that scam in the book because I I know it must work. You know, there must be times when when people are uh, too busy or too you know unaware to realize that this might be a scam, and they probably just fork over some money to get out of the situation. So. The fact that that scam must be working made me think I should probably put this in the book, and maybe a few people will not fall for it because of it. Do you know who fell for that scam in East Harlem? Oh, no. <laughs> did, did you? I did. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I, know it, I know it's common, right? Yeah, he actually dropped a bottle. It wasn't glasses. It was a bottle. said so the bottle broke. Yeah. I did walk away, but he followed me and said that the liquid was all over the place and he couldn't afford to replace it. I felt oh, bad, and I forked over 20 bucks. Yeah, no, and I, you know what? I I I think that's crazy, and uh, well, I realize, especially in your case, that it's it's essentially it's just a it's a form of mugging. It's just a it's just a different notch on the you know it, it is mugging. It's just that you're you're kind of appealing to someone's guilt or just you know leave me alone essentially. How do you think people in a city like New York need to carry themselves to avoid being scammed on the streets? Well, it's a lot like defensive driving. When I was back in Ohio and was driving my car, um, I remember thinking, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not you. It's not anyone in particular. It's just that, uh, in general, you must drive as if people are out to get you. And, and I think that's why there is a little bit of an impersonal feel to anyone walking on the street in New York. Everyone has to be a little bit, uh, a little bit on the defensive, uh, because you, you will run into that kind of person occasionally. So. I, you know, I, I mentioned another scam where someone drops all their coins, and uh, while you're bending down to pick up their coins, um, they, they might steal whatever's on the table, or like an iPhone or whatever you're not watching. And that's the kind of thing where uh, the, the solution is to stay focused on your main task. So if someone does drop coins, you can help them, but just make sure all your belongings are secured and you're, you're keeping an eye on everything around you. Since the books come out, have others besides myself admitted to you that they've been scammed in New York City? Oh, yeah, definitely. No, and a friend was telling me the exact same thing that happened to you. A friend was explaining that he, he actually was, <laughs> he was followed uh, by the person. He was followed by the guy, and, um, and he tried to get rid of him. He tried to just shake him and say, you know, I don't have any cash. I would need to, I would need to go to the store and actually get, you know, get something or get some cash. And the guy just stuck with him. And so they, he eventually did have to fork over $10 to get him to leave him alone. But, yeah, there, there's so many people who are scammed. And then really sometimes, I, and I would say that sometimes forking over $10 is probably the best option so that someone doesn't, isn't persistently bothering you. I, I totally understand that. Your book has garnered a lot of media attention since its release, and it seems to have struck a nerve with both locals and tourists alike. Why do you think it's had such widespread appeal? Well, I think the accessibility of the book is uh, is number one. Uh, New York doesn't feel very accessible when I moved to it. It, it felt like I uh, this is a kind of a cool club that I need to learn how to, how to get in here in this cool club called New York City. Um, but the accessibility of the book, I think, right away, on the very first page, I mentioned how you can take a Staten Island ferry for free. You can see the Statue of Liberty, or you can pay and get a really cool tour of the island. The thing is that when you come to New York, there's so much knowledge that you don't have, that people who have lived there here their whole lives, they do have that knowledge. And I, and I was just trying to observe what New Yorkers know that you don't know. And that's why I never call myself a New Yorker in the book. 
I hold that term in, in such reverence. I think that this is a this is an accessible book for anyone who comes to the city. They can kind of understand. Here are 136 things that actually help you on your way to becoming a New Yorker. Living in a city like New York can be a stressful experience. What simple steps can we take to lower our stress levels? What do we allow us to stress us out too much? Do you think? Well, it's a lot like the serenity prayer. You're you're asking God to give me the, uh, the wisdom to understand the difference between things you can't control and things you can control. And um, and I mentioned in the book that the train schedule is a great example of something you can't control. It definitely is hard because sometimes you're going to be late, but I think relaxing and taking a deep breath and maybe carrying a book with you so you can relax on the train, relax about the train. That's a big deal because people get very, very upset when they're trying to communicate. New York City basic tips and etiquette number 13. Do we need to be touching? <laughs> right. That's, uh, that was one of my personal pet peeves. I, it, when, there, when there's a crowded train and everyone's touching, uh, it certainly makes sense. The answer is yes, we need to be touching. But when you're in line at Chipotle or when you're in line at Subway or wherever, and there's really only two people in line, there's no reason for two people to be touching like that. Uh, that's why I, I drew that, because I think there, there are a few people out there I've, I've run into who don't understand personal space. You have 136 pieces of advice in this book. I would imagine that it was probably even hard to narrow that down. Right, yeah, and there, there are many people who are... Uh, when they review the book, they like it, but they say, you know, he didn't mention this one thing that I think is the most important thing in the whole city. Uh, so, so I knew that that would happen, and that's that's understandable because each day, each one of us has the one thing that bothers us the most. And I tried to get 136 of the things that uh, was most important, um, but I knew that there might be some some New Yorkers who still say, you know what, you didn't mention X, Y, or Z, and uh, I really can't believe you failed to mention that. Well, I think what you're doing, Nathan, is you're getting us to, in a way, laugh about it, the way you illustrated right. this book. And if we laugh about it, then it wouldn't bother us so much, perhaps. Yeah, and that's it. And there's also some solidarity in the fact that you and I, anyone who reads this, we can say, you know what, that does bother me. And it's okay that it bothers me because it's, uh, it's, it happens a dozen times every day. And it's, uh, it's honestly, it, it can be really, it can grate on your nerves after a while. Very good, and I wish I had your book in my hands prior to me getting bottle scams in East Harlem, but now I know better. <laughs> right. Yeah, and everyone else listening does too. Nathan, good thanks thing. so much. You got it. Good to talk. Nathan Pyle is the author of NYC Basic Tips and Etiquette. It's out now from William Morrow Paperbacks. No one likes to be duped, and we can be overcome with a wide range of emotions when we're on the receiving end of a scam. Dr. Ryan Howell is an associate professor of psychology at San Francisco State University. We called on him to give us some insight into the psychological impact of getting ripped off. Dr. Howell, I appreciate you taking the time. No worries. Thank you for having me. Unfortunately, every now and then, one of us falls victim to a scam. But help us to understand the psychological impact of falling victim to a scam and how people often feel when they're scammed. Well, I mean, most of the time when people fall victim to some, some sort of scam, um, obviously the, the biggest problem they have is rumination. Uh, rumination in psychology is something where you just keep replaying um, the events in your head to try and figure out exactly uh, what happened and, and why you fell victim to something. Um, and there's a lot of self-blame that sort of comes with that. The biggest part of rumination is that it seems like a really good idea uh, to sit around and try and think about what you're really doing, um, but people just get in this cycle 
of replaying something in their head, and they never make any sort of progress out of that. So it becomes very stalling. And, of course, you basically have a, a huge amount of self-criticism, uh, self-defeating attitudes, frustrations that come from the sort of rumination as opposed to sort of breaking the cycle, being a little bit more self-compassionate with yourself and saying, you know what, scammers are good at what they do. Um, hopefully I won't do this in the future, but you know, I'm not the only one that's ever had this happen to. So those are a lot of the psychological principles that are play anytime that we get scams uh, and lose money or, or make a poor purchase. Dr. Howell, can you help us to get inside of the mind of a scammer? I mean, what is it that prompts someone to take advantage of someone else? It's tough to say. I mean, I think there's some really obvious, you know, lay explanations that jive with some of the research that we've seen. You know, a person is um, obviously self-focused. It could sometimes be a little bit narcissistic. Sometimes you'll hear some different types of excuse behavior. Um, you know, they sort of you know, they're just doing what they sort of need to do to sort of get by or whatever. There's no consistent trend. I mean, this is the same thing that you see with any. I mean, the good thing is that very few people really are scammers. I mean, we hear about them and we think they're all over the place. Um, but most of us are actually pretty good people um, who don't take advantage of others, at least um, not intentionally. So it's hard to know what exactly is going on in their mind when you're you know, dealing with something at such a low base rate. Dr. Howell, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That was Dr. Ryan Howell. He's an associate professor of psychology at San Francisco State University. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can listen to past episodes of the show in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. And we invite you to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.